A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. Great to have you with us. And just ahead this hour, Russia's fury. People in Kyiv take shelter as Moscow unleashes fresh rocket attacks. A warning to Western nations, perhaps after their landmark decision to send tanks. We have a live report from Ukraine just ahead. Plus, Tesla tops shares of the EV giant accelerating pre-market. Musk and company report record profits. Also ambitious delivery goals despite economic headwinds. But is it too bullish a target? We will discuss with Tesla bear Gordon Johnson of GLJ Research. Also GDP, decree. The U.S. reporting just minutes ago that the economy grew at a stronger than expected 2.9 percent annual rate in the fourth quarter. Also a big jump in durable goods orders as well. And another drop in new jobless claims, all of this pointing to a resilient U.S. economy. Let's take a look at the market reaction. Wall Street, well, look at that. Green arrows across the board. Wall Street on track for a higher open after a mixed session on Wednesday. Tech really set to outperform here, but take a look. Europe also higher as well. After a busy day for tech earnings there, shares of Nokia rallying after an earnings beat. But German software giant SAP missing Q4 forecast. It's also cutting almost 3,000 jobs and more tech pain in the U.S., IBM getting rid of almost 4,000 positions or about one and a half percent of its global workforce. Lots to get to this hour, but let's begin with the latest in Ukraine. Tanks promised from the West while missiles rained down from Moscow. One person has died and at least two more are injured after Russia launched a new wave of strikes against Ukraine early on Thursday. The attack came after Germany and the U.S. announced that they would supply modern battle tanks to Ukraine, a move that the Kremlin is calling, quote, a direct involvement in the conflict. Sam Kiley with us now. He is live in Kiev. So, Sam, you are on the ground there. What are you seeing? Well, Rahel, once again, we've seen one of these uh, wave attacks using two different types of weapon by the Russians to go after the civilian infrastructure, particularly the energy infrastructure here in Ukraine. We've been seeing this now for months uh, on almost a weekly basis. What the Russians have been doing once again is send in uh, Shahed, uh, low-level, low-grade drones to absorb a lot of the air defences and then follow that up with more sophisticated, much more powerful cruise missiles. Now, over the capital city here in Kiev, local authorities are saying they shot down all 20 cruise missiles that were aimed at the capital. One uh, was shot down. The debris from that killed a local resident in his 50s and fell fairly close to a significant energy generating facility, which uh, was clearly being targeted by the Russians. Now, elsewhere in the country, the Ukrainians have preempted this strike because they had intelligence that it was likely to be coming by uh, dialing down the amount of energy they were producing so that the results of any successful strike against them could be minimized. That seems to have been effective here in Kiev. Most of the emergency services, the supplies of power to hospitals and other critical infrastructure is back up. Same uh, reportedly out of a So they have once again weathered one of these storms. But this has taken none of the shine of their pleasure and delight, I should say, Rahel, received here in in this country over the reports that... uh, the, first of all, Germans are going to be sending Leopard tanks along with their other allies. Some 80 or so Leopard tanks are expected in the next few months. 
30 Abrams tanks probably going to take a bit longer. Uh, 14 Challenger tanks from the United Kingdom that may be here in a matter of weeks. These are not strategic weapons, but they are strategically symbolic in because they show the enormous amount of unity now in the West at a time when the Russians might have been hoping for some fragmentation about what the strategy should be for Ukraine in the West. Now they are full square behind the Ukrainian strategy, which is to continue to prosecute this war until the Russians can be driven out. And there, there is hope here in the Ukrainian administration that these tanks will be the precursor to more and more strategic weapons, particularly air defences, particularly long-range missile strike capability, but above all, air defences and potentially aircraft, attack aircraft, which is something they've been asking for from before day one of this conflict, Rahel. Sam Kiley for us live there in Kyiv. Thank you, Sam. We want to now turn to the fight for a key eastern city as Ukraine grows even more fierce. The Ukrainian military says that Russia has been pounding Bakhmut. CNN's Frederick Pleiken has the details. The Russian army claims its overwhelming firepower is decimating Ukrainian defenses on the most brutal front in this war around the town Bakhmut. 15 men just ran into this house. Yes, Yes, target hit. He managed to collapse the middle of the building. Ukraine has now acknowledged losing its last foothold in the small town Solidar, north of Bakhmut. Russians there, mostly mercenaries from the Wagner private military company, judging by their own claims. We were fast to select the target, charge up and hit it. We hit it precisely. We hit the building right in the place where the ATGM was located. But despite sources telling CNN the U.S. has advised Ukraine to withdraw from Bakhmut, even Wagner commanders admit Kiev's forces are fighting back. The enemy puts up fierce resistance to our fighters. The enemy is holding on and is getting additional reserves and military supplies. And the Ukrainians continue probing in other areas far from Bakhmut. The military releasing this video of a daring raid across the Dnipro River in south Ukraine, taking out a Russian command facility there. But to go on the offensive, Ukraine needs hundreds of main battle tanks. So far, Western partners have pledged about 100. Moscow has vowed to hit those tanks when they enter Ukraine and is conducting a show of force of its own, sending the frigate Admiral Gorshkov, which Moscow says carries hypersonic missiles, to ocean drills with the Chinese and South African navies. But for now, Bakhmut is the epicenter of this conflict, and Ukrainian soldiers here say they will fight for every inch. One day their artillery works, and the next day their infantry assaults. It's a difficult time now, but our boys keep standing their ground. Ukrainian soldiers fighting on the front lines in and around Bakhmut who were contacted by CNN say they are absolutely elated to hear that Western main battle tanks could be coming to Ukraine in the not-too-distant future. They say that tanks are a huge part of the equation here and have been helping the frontline troops a lot. Of course, they understand it's going to be a while before any Western main battle tanks get here, but right now the Ukrainians say they need all the help they can get as the Russians are making a big push to try and go to, towards the West and take Bakhmut. Fred Pleiken, CNN, Kramatorsk, Ukraine. 
and we'll have more First Move after this. Welcome back. The U.S. economy maintaining a solid pace of growth. Fourth quarter GDP expanding at an annual rate of 2.9 percent. Matt Egan joins us now with the details. So, Matt, where are you seeing the strength in this report? Because when I look, I have the report here. It looks pretty broad where we're seeing these increases from consumer spending to government spending. What else are you seeing? Yeah, Rahel, this is really across the board strength. Very good news. The only uh, negative side of this GDP report is housing. And we knew that was going to be a negative. The fact that um, mortgage rates have spiked has driven down home construction. It's also hurt um, commissions for real estate agents. So that's been a negative. But otherwise, consumers are spending, businesses are spending, government is spending, and all of that is contributing to what is stronger than expected GDP. I mean, this is essentially a report card for the U.S. economy. And in the first half of last year, the economy was kind of getting failing or near failing grades, right? There were back-to-back quarters of negative growth. It was kind of puzzling. It set off a lot of concerns that maybe the economy was already in a recession, but ending the year clearly on a very strong note. Uh, you know, we had above 3% growth in the third quarter and now almost 3% growth in the fourth quarter. Throw that on top of some other really good economic news we were getting this morning. Jobless claims unexpectedly fell in the latest week. They're actually lower than they were a year ago. Remember, this is a proxy for layoffs. So even though we keep hearing about major companies, including IBM and SAP and Dow, all of them cutting jobs, if you look out, you look at the broader economy, we're seeing that unemployment remains very low and the jobs market remains pretty solid here, Rahel. Matt, I think it's a great point. Jobless claims, which is a proxy for unemployment, as you said, coming in at their lowest level since April. So that is certainly uh, something that's going to raise some eyebrows in a, in a positive way this time. Matt, you know, when we get these GDP reports, certainly in this environment, we're looking for any signs of a recession. And this was better than expected, as you pointed out. One thing, however, that's uh, providing a bit more concern is this debt ceiling crisis, this debt ceiling debate. And as I understand it, you spoke to the top economists at Goldman Sachs about the real damage that that could cause the close closer we get to that X date, whatever that date is, essentially when the Treasury Department can't use a, a creative accounting measures, what else did he tell you? Yeah, Jan Hatzi is the top economist over Goldman Sachs. Um, he did sound concerned about the debt ceiling. It's this $31 trillion borrowing limit. And this, uh, a lot of the, the tensions in Congress are raising concerns that lawmakers are going to have trouble uh, raising the debt ceiling before the U.S. government runs out of money. And the Goldman Sachs economist, he told me, look, um, if they don't act in time, there's going to be really negative side effects in financial markets. People are going to start to be worried about the safety of U.S. government debt. And I asked him, I was like, well, could this cause a recession if there's a default or even a near default? And he said, yes. He thinks, though, that's not going to happen. He thinks that eventually they're going to get a deal done. Now, bigger picture, Rahel, Goldman Sachs is actually very optimistic on the economy. They're calling for a soft landing. And today's GDP report actually supports that argument. Listen to what Jan Hatzius had to tell me about why he's optimistic on the economy. No, we don't expect a recession. Our expectation is that we'll see still positive GDP numbers. We're saying, estimating a 35% probability that it will be a recession. 
So, Rahel, we've heard so much gloom and doom from Wall Street banks um, about the risk of a recession. But here you have Goldman Sachs, the most influential bank on Wall Street, coming out and saying, listen, let's chill out with the recession talk here. We could still get a soft landing. Uh, inflation is cooling off. And you got to wonder whether or not today's GDP report, combined with the unemployment numbers that are out, uh, durable claim, durable goods orders, all of this upbeat economic news, that you got to wonder if more economists are going to shift from the recession camp to the soft landing camp. It's an interesting point, Matt. You know, last week I spoke to Mark Zandi, an economist you and I both know very well. We both talked to a lot for our stories, and he is also in the soft landing camp. But I should say, Matt, that much like Jan, he told me that the closer we get to a debt ceiling X date where the Treasury Department, as I said, can't use those creative measures, the closer we get to a recession. So on this area, it seems that there is some debate. Matt Egan, good to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, Meta says that it will reinstate former U.S. President Donald Trump's accounts on Facebook and Instagram. It's just over two years since they were suspended in the wake of the January 6th Capitol attack. Elon Musk restored Mr. Trump's Twitter account two months ago. Donny O'Sullivan joins us with more. Donny, we expected that this might happen. Is Meta saying anything about how they came to this decision? Yeah, so, Raul, people might remember two years ago, uh, right after the Capitol attack, that is when Facebook and, of course, other platforms, too, uh, banned Trump. Um, They said at the time it was dangerous to have him on their platform, uh, that he might incite further violence and that there was a direct direct risk of uh, imminent harm. Uh, Facebook Meta now says that uh, that risk has uh, receded uh, and that it is now okay for Trump to go back on the platform. Um, it is a bit wishy-washy of, you know, really they tried to, I guess, get the mood uh, of the country on this kind of subjective issue. Uh, but right now they're saying he will be able to go back on and post within the coming weeks. And no question of whether he will actually take up their offer, because as I understand it, he is still not on Twitter. And you could argue, Doni, that that appeared to be his favorite platform or his preferred platform. We'll see. Yeah, that's right. So. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's right. So, so right now, Trump is posting on his own social media platform, which is Truth Social. Um, there's reporting we have is, is that he does have an exclusivity agreement with that platform where he has to post there first and he can post a few hours later on other platforms. Uh, but it is broadly expected that he might be able to f- get his way out of that agreement. Uh, look, he uses Twitter and Facebook very differently. Um, Twitter is where he can stay in the news, in the conversation. Uh, Facebook is where the Trump campaign in both 2016 and 2020 really effectively used the targeted advertising. In the last election cycle in 2020, they spent hundreds uh, of millions of dollars on Facebook, uh, also because they can use it as a fundraising tool. Uh, th- that investment, they're getting campaign donations uh, through that. Um, look, this is obviously a very big political issue here in the US. Many people um, saying that Trump should not be allowed back on, that really the conditions in the country have not changed that much, and Trump is continuing continuing to spout election lies um, that could, they argue, um, uh, incite further violence. Uh, On the other side of this, um, there are people saying, including, by the way, the ACLU, and I think we have the ACLU's uh, statement, uh, that it is a good decision uh, that 
Facebook made yesterday, uh, that a company like Facebook should not be allowed to silence or censor uh, a former president and, and now a candidate for office in 2024. The ACLU saying this is a right call, like or not, President Trump is one of the country's leading political figures and the public has a strong interest uh, in hearing his speech. Um, so look, we'll see how long it's going to take if Trump goes back on the platform, how long it might take for him to break the rules or for them to ban him again or to take uh, action against him. Lots more to watch. Tony O'Sullivan, thank you. Israel. Well, call it a charged up Tesla. Shares of the electric car giant set to rally almost 10 percent after the firm posted record profits and a Q4 revenue beat. A positive outlook as well from CEO Elon Musk. Musk raising the possibility that the firm could deliver a stronger than expected 2 million vehicles this year. He says recent price cuts have fueled demand, even as he warns that we could see a, quote, pretty difficult recession later this year. Shares of Tesla, which tumbled more than 60 percent in 2022, are now up more than 20 percent so far in January. Tesla analyst Dan Ives, a frequent guest on this program, you might remember we talked to him on yesterday's program, says Tesla's Q4 bodes well for the year ahead. Listen. Look, this was Tesla's Super Bowl. In terms of what's been a dark few months for Musk as well as Tesla, a major bright spot. I think demand story in 2023, pretty upbeat. China coming back post those price cuts. And they made a poker move in terms of cutting prices. Seems like it's paying off significantly. Bulls are going to like this. Dan Ives, sorry to say it. Gordon Johnson just not buying it. He is the CEO and founder of GLJ Research. He is also a longtime Tesla bear and joins us now. Gordon, good to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So as I said, you are admittedly not a Tesla bull. Help me understand, you have a price target of 2433, which is a pretty substantial drop from where we are currently. What's your top line reaction to the results and perhaps more importantly, the guidance looking ahead? Yeah, I just want to correct you on the guidance. Their guidance is 1.8 million cars sold. He said there's a possibility they'll get to two. 1.8 million cars sold on the 4Q runway is growth of just 11%. On all of last year is growth of just 37%. They've said they're going to grow 50%. That's how the stock is valued. Okay, so just with respect to the results, we thought the results were very bad. I know that the stock's reacting positively, but let me run through it. So their auto gross margin fell 319 basis points quarter over quarter. Keep in mind, in the fourth quarter, the price cut was just one point, roughly $5,000 across their suite of cars. In the first quarter, which is what's really important, their price cut is about $5,000 across their suite of cars. So their gross margins fell 319 basis points with the price cut in, in, in Q4. Let's look at, some other Q4, look at some other Q4 items. Their inventory in Q4 is up 120% year over year. That's a big problem with respect to write downs. In addition to that, Elon Musk clarified yesterday that their guided 1.8 million of sales this year is not, not supply constrained. What that means is there's just not demand for their cars. And given that he also confirmed that their price cuts equated to just one month of orders, that means they're probably gonna have to cut prices again in 2Q. So we can get into some more stuff, but I think this was a bad quarter. So I take your point that their margins are definitely being squeezed in the midst of these price cuts, but some would argue that they're making a more long-term play, right? They're uh, taking, they're sacrificing their margins now, at least this is what some of the bulls would say, so that they can get the volume in the future. Do you not buy that? It's not that I buy that. Let's run through some numbers, right? So 
the profit, their net profit, which includes all their service, uh, their, their regulatory credits and their FSV revenue, their net profit in Q4 was about $3.7 billion. Over 405,000 cars sold, that works out to a profit per car of about $9,000, right? Their price cut on average in Q1 is $5,000. So assume they get another $1,000 of cost savings and you get a price cut of $4,000. You take that $9,000, subtract $4,000, you get $5,000. Dollars per car, that's profit, right? Net profit. You multiply that by their 1.8 million of guidance and you get a number uh, divided by their shares outstanding of, of about $2.69 per share in earnings. The street is currently at $4 and $2.69 per share based on where the price is today is a 55 times multiple. That means that the street is saying they're gonna grow 55% for the next 10 years where they're guiding you to basically 11% growth this year. So it's not that I don't buy it, it's just that the valuation doesn't even match their numbers. So anybody who's buying the stock at these prices today, I think is gonna be hurt pretty badly. I want to pull up, uh, we can pull up sort of where uh, volume has been over the last few years, Gordon, because I think that's the point you're trying to make, right? Essentially, if you look at sort of the last few years, 1.8, it's still strong growth, uh, but not necessarily what the multiple would imply. Uh, production target appears, appears not so realistic, according to you. There does seem to be some debate, though, about whether Tesla does, in fact, have a demand problem. I know you think that they have a demand problem. Elon Musk addressed this on the call uh, yesterday, essentially saying he wants to put the issue to rest, saying they had one of their strongest, the strongest January in terms of sales. Why do you think Tesla has a demand problem? That's a great question. So the reason why we think they have a demand problem is very simple. BYD has increased prices in China two times thus far. VW is increasing prices in China. Tesla is aggressively cutting prices, not just in China, but the U.S. and Europe. Currently, Tesla's run rate demand is about 1.75 million cars per year. Their capacity right now is roughly double that. So they're not even selling half of their existing capacity. That is the quintessential definition of a demand problem, a company cutting prices that can't sell its existing capacity. Um, and with respect to what people say Elon said, believing what Elon says is the equivalent, in our view, of believing that kid at elementary who said his dad beat Michael Jordan in a game of one-on-one. You know, it, it's very risky. What do I mean? Elon Musk, we now know that he directed that video in 2016, the Painted Black video, that was basically a complete farce. We know that Elon Musk showed solar panels to justify the acquisition of Solar City that were fake. We know Elon Musk filed a 13G versus a 13D in association with Twitter. So, and we know that, by the way, they just pushed out the Cybertruck another year. The Cybertruck is now 2024, right? That was supposed to happen in 2021. So believing what Elon Musk says, you know, do it your own caution. But if you look at the numbers, the numbers do not paint a good picture. And that's why the auto industry trades at six times earnings, not 55 times earnings, which is what Tesla is currently trading at. Even Morgan Stanley, one of our competitors, said the number is probably going to come in at $3 this year in their note this morning. If that is indeed the case, this stock is going to come down a lot. Look, I know it's up a lot today. I think it's due to a lot of misunderstandings, misreadings. But these were not good numbers. And the guidance, the implied guidance for Q1 suggests a number of like 76 cents when the street's at a dollar. So I think you're going to have more earnings revisions. Be careful on this stock. Gordon Johnson, unfortunately, we have to leave it here. But look, I appreciate the enthusiasm and the passion. And we'll have to see what happens with Tesla stock, because uh, look, as we pointed out, last year was a rough year. But so far this year, uh, certainly starting off strong. Gordon Johnson, thank you. Thank you. 
Well, Southwest Airlines and that service meltdown over the holidays has costed far more than thousands of frustrated customers. The airline had to cancel, remember this, more than 16,700 flights in late December, leaving it $226 million in the red in the fourth quarter, with more losses expected this quarter. Well, now Southwest says that it is cooperating with an investigation by the U.S. government. The Department of Transportation is examining whether Southwest is scheduling more flights than it can actually operate. Now, despite a host of service problems, travelers are still taking to the skies. But Scott Kirby, the CEO of United, says that the system is stressed to the max and that airlines cannot run the way they did before the pandemic. CNN chief business correspondent Christine Roman spoke to him and she joins me now. Christine, I watched the interview. It was wide ranging. You covered a lot of topics from demand to recession. What else really stuck out to you? You know that it just doesn't take very much to break the back of the system right now. And these airlines are trying to find creative ways, united in case in point, creative ways to sort of break through this bottleneck. And one of the problems is this shortage uh, of pilots, of airline pilots. And it's a pipeline that is aging. It is predominantly white male. And this is an airline now, United, that has actually started its own flight school, owns its own flight school, so they can try to tap new pipelines of talent so that it can fix this labor shortage, which is part, of course, of all, all overall long-term challenges for airlines. Listen. In our first graduating class, 70% of the students are women or people of color. It's just been big barriers to entry. Uh, and they're obviously great careers for people. You can't run an airline like it's 2019. And the reason is because the system is, is stressed to the max. There's strains everywhere, whether it's in security or at FAA staffing or systems, uh, having enough pilots. And when something happens, the straws are much more likely to break the camel's back. And you've seen it over and over again with other airlines having, you know, either bad operational issues or sometimes, you know, going all the way into meltdowns. And so the only thing we can do with it, and we've done it United, is run with more resources. I suspect the rest of the industry is going to have to go to that kind of approach as well, or they'll continue to fail. Uh, it has been remarkable, Scott, to watch your business in particular, the airline business, come out of what I call the COVID crouch, where all of a sudden, People want to fly. Even with higher airfares, airfares overall up 28% year over year, people still want to travel? We see incredibly strong demand. Um, you know, and I think this hybrid work makes every weekend a holiday is the new normal. It's not pent-up demand. It's because people work hybrid. They now have the flexibility with their time that they can leave on a Wednesday or Thursday, make a long weekend. But I can also see it in our data uh, that, that that is the way consumers are, are behaving because they were constrained by time before. It wasn't money that constrained their ability to travel. It was time. Is business travel showing any of those concerns, the recession, dark clouds of 2023, or people pulling back on, on business travel expenses? Small and middle, medium-sized businesses are back, and they're traveling actually more than they did pre-pandemic. But there are a lot of companies, you know, the tech companies, uh, that are behaving like they would in a recession. But that's to be expected. I mean, if you're laying off tens of thousands of employees, uh, you're not going to have a big travel budget. Uh, we see what I would describe as recessionary-like behavior, but it's being overcome by the strength in other parts of the economy uh, and leisure, which is leading to really good results at, at United and at other airlines, frankly. Um, what keeps you up at night in terms of the outlook um, for the U.S. economy? <laughs> Well, I'm a solid sleeper. I sleep about eight and a half hours at night. Our base case is really pretty strong results, actually getting back to above 
2019 uh, levels in terms of profitability for us, even if there is a recession. But there's a lot of risk in the world. I would put Ukraine, uh, you know, in some kind of escalation in Ukraine, high on that list. Fuel prices, uh, high on that list. You know, the debt, the debt showdown. My guess is there'll be some histrionics and drama around it. Um, but ultimately, it's not going to sidetrack the U.S. economy for the long term, even though there might be a short-term issue. And there's always the black swans that we haven't thought about or don't even know about. But we're set up. You know, I think we've set the company up. We've certainly tried to set United Airlines up uh, that we can ride through, you know, those ups and downs. Rahel, I sure hope he's right about histrionics for the debt ceiling and then it gets uh, worked out. But I think the headline, the takeaway breaking news from that interview is that Scott Kirby sleeps eight and a half hours a night. I'd like to know more about uh, what the trick is to that. Oh, the eight and a half hours of sleep. I'm sorry. I, I was hearing two things in my ear at once. Yeah, I got that got my attention too. Eight and a half hours. I can barely get six on a good night. Uh, Christine Romans, great interview and good to have you on the program. Thank Thanks, Rahel. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running on a busy day for earnings and U.S. economic data. Wall Street beginning the session higher. Look at the S&P up about three quarters of one percent. The Nasdaq up one point three percent and the Dow up, let's call it, three-tenths of a percent. The Dow on track for a fifth day of gains after a positive read on economic growth. U.S. GDP rising at a 2.9 percent annual rate in Q4, slower than Q3, but faster than expected. All of this due to robust spending by government, businesses, and consumers. The consumer outlook backed up by new comments from MasterCard. The credit card giant seeing, quote, a remarkably resilient U.S. consumer. Stocks in the news today include Oil giant Chevron, its shares are higher after announcing a $75 billion stock buyback program and also a dividend hike. Investors tend to like that. IBM shares are pulling back a bit. They are down 4%. The tech giant met profit estimates and posted better than expected sales, but it is warning of weak demand for its consulting services. It's also laying off almost 4,000 workers. And Tesla is soaring after its better than expected Q4 results. Tesla up almost 10%. Meantime, China reporting its biggest drop in visits to fever clinics since it scrapped its zero-COVID policy. The full extent of the country's current COVID battle is unclear, but health experts are warning that travel over the Lunar New Year holiday will result in a huge uptick of cases in rural areas. CNN's Selena Wang visited a village in southern China that's closely followed by government officials. This is how people celebrate the Lunar New Year in Dali Village. Cheers! This year's celebration is particularly special. The adults around this table all work in factories in the cities. This is the only time when many of them can see their children. The man next to me says, we got to go wherever we can make money. And China's zero COVID policy over the last three years has made it all even harder. He says the policy prevented them from going home. But now that the country's open, they can all be together. We came to this place in China's southern Guizhou province to see how a part of rural China is celebrating the Lunar New Year without pandemic restrictions. We visited villagers' home. Sanjia greets us with a treat and alcohol, both made from rice from the paddy fields nearby. Drinking is a big part of celebrating here. About a thousand people live in this village, and for hundreds of years, they've lived in these traditional wooden houses. And you can hear the chickens crowing, and there are these ducks as well that they raise for food. In many ways, this place is like a time capsule. Its physical isolation has preserved their way of life for centuries. 
They're China's Dong ethnic minority. They have their own language, tradition, and culture, but they can't escape the economic realities of modernity. Normally, this village is full of the elderly and young kids, with most of the working-age adults gone, working in faraway factories, sending money home. This couple works in a factory 500 miles away in Guangdong province, making circuit boards. He tells me he hasn't seen his kids for a year. Last time he left, his son couldn't even walk. He says it's emotional to see them grow so much. For the first time in three years, millions of Chinese migrant families are finally able to reunite without the fear of COVID lockdowns. Almost everyone I speak to on camera says no one around them has gotten COVID, like this elderly woman who makes traditional crafts. She says she has not been wearing a mask and points to her shoulder, saying she's had the vaccine shots. But we run into another group of young people who say otherwise. The man in the brown jacket with his back turned is a doctor at a hospital in a nearby city. He says almost all of the villagers have been infected. I ask him if they just don't realize they have COVID. In response, he says they've never been tested, but clearly they had COVID symptoms. So we've got the three government minders following us. It's common for local officials to keep a close eye on foreign journalists in their jurisdictions, but they were especially persistent in this village, following our every move. So we drive out of the village to visit a public hospital in a neighboring county about two hours away, hoping these government minders won't follow us so people will feel more comfortable speaking freely. We walk inside the fever clinic. It's almost entirely empty. In the main hospital area, there are more people, but it's not packed. It's a stark contrast to the images of overflowing hospitals in major cities across China from weeks before. I ask a nurse on another floor of the hospital if it was packed with patients a few weeks ago. She says, it's always packed and busy here. We try to ask why it looks empty here, but another doctor interrupts, ending our interview. We find one woman, a patient's family member, who is willing to speak to us. She says everyone around her has already gotten COVID and recovered. Soon after, we realize we're being followed, apparently by a whole different crew. There's at least two, three government minders. They're still following us all the way here. It's very obvious. They follow us to hospital after hospital, preventing anyone from speaking to us. I try confronting them. I ask them why they're following us everywhere. And he ignores me. He's walking away. So I tried this official. She refuses to even acknowledge my question. And what happens next during my interview with this girl shocks us. Okay, so I was just interviewing the girl and then the minders literally took her away from us. The man pushes the girl and her family away, then later leaves them alone. But our interviews in the marketplace are over. China's CDC says the COVID peak across the country has passed. But in rural areas like this, experts say there's likely far more silent suffering. People who died at home because they couldn't afford to go to the hospital or were unable to get there on time. Back in the village, were greeted by the sounds of squealing pigs getting ready to be slaughtered. It's a Lunar New Year tradition. 
Decades ago, for most countryside families, this was the only time of the year when they could afford to eat meat. So this is a whole family of relatives are all getting together for the Lunar New Year, enjoying the freshly killed pig meat. Sandhya shows me the fabric she made herself. Sewing just a thin strip of this cloth takes her more than a day. Whether it's in the village or in faraway factories, they're hardworking people. They'll do whatever it takes to give their kids a better life, even if it means long bouts of separation from them, making reunions like these all the more meaningful. Now, China's health officials say that the COVID peak in the country has already passed. The spread has been so fast in China, experts say, because China's population had almost no underlying immunity before reopening. So it appears that one massive wave ended up sweeping over the whole country, hitting the urban and rural areas almost simultaneously. But people in the countryside, they're a lot poorer and there are a lot less resources. So in rural areas like this, experts say there's likely far more silent suffering. People who died at home because they couldn't afford to go to the hospital or were unable to get there on time. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. Welcome back. Diageo makes some of the world's most iconic drink brands, including Johnny Walker, Guinness and Smirnoff. Consumers around the world let the premium drinks flow over the past six months, but spirits weren't as bright in the U.S. Diageo's half-yearly sales came in higher than analysts expected, while growth slowed in its key North American market, rising prices and global geopolitical uncertainty among the challenges. But Diageo says that it is confident in its consumers and its business. Joining me now is Diageo CEO Ivan Menezes. Ivan, wonderful to have you on the program today. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's start there. So half yearly sales came in better than expected. Also, what caught my attention, high end brands rose even faster and were responsible for two thirds of sales growth. Uh, Absolutely. Our business grew 9% worldwide, every region of the world in growth. Uh, We expanded margins while investing in the business. Uh, EPS is up 15%. This is very strong performance. Our Scotch whiskey business, the Arjo's largest category, grew 19%. Uh, Tequila continues to be on a roll. It was up 28%. Casamigos and Don Julio continue to do really well. Uh, The Guinness brand, one of our big brands, grew 17%. So what's really encouraging is uh, two trends. One is uh, spirits is still very strong and desired by consumers. The cocktail culture is alive. It's well-established in America. It's spreading elsewhere. And people are drinking better, the second trend. And as you pointed out, the top end of our portfolio, which is about 28% of our business, our reserve business, grew double-digit in every region of the world. So we're feeling very good about the consumer and very good about our business. Always encouraging to hear good news about the consumer. What about North America? You started to touch on geography there. Are you concerned at all that it appears that sales are starting to slow in North America, which, as I understand it, is is a huge part of profits, a huge part of the business? Uh, No, I'm not concerned at all. North America is our most attractive market. And the consumer, if you look even in the last six months, the trends in North America have stayed very positive. Uh, This market is growing mid-single digit. It grew faster through COVID, but we've always said it will come back to mid-single-digit growth, and it has. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spirits is growing, taking share from beer and wine, and the premium end of the business is growing faster. 
You know, Americans, uh, one in three Americans are buying bottles of spirits over $50 a bottle. If you went back a year, it was one in four. So you're seeing more people uh, move to uh, more premium brands because ours is an affordable luxury. The average American household spends a dollar a day on spirits at home. You only buy a few bottles of Kettle One Vodka or Don Julio a year. So your willingness to buy better brands and to pay for better quality is high. And we see that trend continue. So I'm, I'm very optimistic and confident about the future of our business in North America. And we have a, you know, our business since COVID in the US, our US spirits business has grown 45%. This is a substantially bigger business and yeah. it's a lot more premium. As a nation, I can attest, we certainly do love our spirits here in the U.S. Uh, Ivan, I have a lot more ground I want to cover, and we unfortunately don't have a lot more time. So let's turn to China. We're in the midst of the reopening there. We're in the midst, of course, of the Lunar New Year. What are you seeing in that market? Well, it's early days. We were very confident about the reopening and the consumer response to it. Uh, And uh, we expect we have two two main businesses there a high-end Scotch whiskey business, single malts, Johnny Walker, Blue Label, and a Chinese white spirits business, a Baiju business. Uh, Both these businesses have been growing strong double digits for many years. Uh, They did slow down with the COVID lockdowns, but we're confident they're going to come back. Uh, I, I believe, I remain very confident about the reopening and the consumer recovery in China, and we're certainly playing for that to happen in the next few quarters. Ivan, what areas are you seeing that is perhaps a bit more concerning? You mentioned uh, that you're not concerned about North America. You're saying that China's coming back. But what area are you seeing that, that does give you pause? I think it's, it's really continuing to work through the volatility in the world. Mm-hmm. So inflation hasn't gone away. We've got geopolitics at play. You've got economies growing at different speeds. You've got the threat of recession. And one of the things our teams at the company does very well is we've navigated this volatility really well. So it requires being extremely sharp, very close to the consumer, uh, spotting trends early and uh, responding. And you also, in this day and age, you need to drive a lot of productivity and efficiency in the business to offset the impacts of inflation that are coming through. And uh, so I, I worry about making sure our teams right across the world have their pulse on the consumer, are agile in responding fast, because the fundamentals are strong. And uh, we are fortunate to be in a category where uh, consumers coming out of COVID want to socialize, want to celebrate, want to make those moments special. Those moments actually count for more. And our brands play a tremendous role in them. So we're fortunate we're on the side of the ledger when consumers come under spending pressure. Mm. This is where consumers actually do want to spend more. They may cut back in other areas. And that's helping the growth in the business. It's a great point. I mean, the desire to spend is certainly there. The question is, you know, how much capacity do you have to spend in the midst of this high inflation environment? Uh, Ivan Mane says, we'll have to leave it here. Thank you. He is the CEO of Diageo. 
Welcome back. Math, you either love it or hate it. And it turns out artificial intelligence is not taking home a very good report card when it comes to calculating interest. CNET, a news outlet, has been forced to issue a series of corrections, some of them substantial, to articles that were written using AI tools, including a story that gave some wildly inaccurate financial advice. CNN's Anna Stewart, who I am sure was top of her class in math, is with me now. Anna, look, I'm not going to ask you to do math problems here on air, but I do want to know, how did this happen? I'm disappointed. I am a business reporter. I'm a nerd. I'm ready for your maths quiz. But no, CNET, uh, one of their articles did show how AI doesn't always get it right. No gold star for maths. Or at least I would actually say, Rahel, it's maths on compound interest was poor. But actually, maybe it wasn't wrong. It was perhaps the language used to explain uh, it that was actually not quite right. As a result, as you said, CNET have looked through some of their AI written articles. In fact, all of them, I think they've done a full audit. They pointed out there were some inaccuracies that editors missed. There were some vague language cases. There was even a little bit of plagiarism, which is no huge surprise given AI does draw upon existing information. And I think perhaps this is a really good example of AI is so good at some things. Sometimes it needs human intelligence working alongside it, which is great because we still have jobs, Rahel, you'll be pleased to know. Um, It is being used, though, and it has been used for some time by other news outlets like Newswire services, Reuters, Associated Press, And it's often used for data-driven articles. For instance, financial earnings reports. Often these are articles that are incredibly formulaic and AI can really speed things up. It often needs to be checked by a human journalist as well. And more often than not, you will see sometimes at the bottom of articles that this was written with the help or entirely with the use of artificial intelligence. There is a use case. It doesn't mean that uh, journalists are being replaced, which I am thrilled to hear. It means that journalists actually can just add more context. So while AI can spew out the data-driven articles, journalists can dig into those earnings, give it context, why does it matter, and ask all the right questions. Rahel? So, Anna, what you're saying is our jobs are safe, at least for now. For now. Thank you. (laughs) Good to have you, Anna. Thank you. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is coming up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.